God speaks these words to us. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do ask for your blessing now, as always, upon this word. Tune our hearts to it, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated if you would. If you want to grab your Bibles, you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I suspect that uh, our time together here following the sermon, many of you will be dissatisfied. uh, Or most of you will be dissatisfied. Either by virtue of what I say about the text, or dissatisfied, just frustrated with the lack of able to communicate fullness or be able to touch on all the questions. Uh, My major thought process would be that there's going to be a lot of questions uh, that are not going to get covered, that I'm not going to be able to touch on, and that's going to create some frustration. That's going to create some dissatisfaction. I want to reiterate, as always, my willingness to talk on the phone. Please call me. This week, my phone will be off the hook. But otherwise, I would eagerly desire to hear from you so that we can touch base on some of these issues. So what I'm not able to talk about today doesn't mean that I haven't thought about it or that there aren't some ideas about it. It has more to do with the timing. So I would encourage you, by all means, to uh, make sure that you give me a call. If you were listening while I read the scriptures, you know that we are going to be talking today about gender roles in worship service. What is male, what is female when it comes to our public worship together? And want to start by reiterating something that we need to reiterate over and over again every time we come together, and that is that we function under the authority of the Word of God. Not any individual passage, but the Word of God collective and whole. That is, that when we speak of the Scriptures, what we are trying to do always is put within context any particular passage The entirety of the Bible, the biblical message as a whole, is uh, across the board, and this is what we want to try to communicate when we are speaking together, sharing together. We are talking not just specifically about a particular passage, but the entire Word of God and how that particular passage gives light into the Word of God and how the Word of God as a whole speaks into this particular passage. It is our understanding that God is ultimately the author of the Scriptures, and God does not contradict Himself. He's not at one spot in the scriptures going to say one thing and in another spot in the scriptures say something else. And so I want to quickly lay out for us a couple of biblical propositions or a couple of biblical assumptions that have to remain in the back of our minds while we're looking at this passage. If you lose track of these propositions, then the biblical passage itself is likely to be lost for us because what Paul is saying here 
fits in comfortably with what the rest of the scripture has always been teaching. And here are a couple of biblical ground rules for us that we're going to talk about. And again, I could elaborate on every one of these for 20 minutes or more. Uh, and so all I'm going to do is articulate them. If uh, there's questions about some of these things, by all means, uh, after the service, let's talk. The affirmation of the mutual dignity and image bearing of both male and female. That is, that the scriptures as a whole maintains and holds that both male and female bear the image of God. Both male and female have that dignity that associates with the image of God. The spiritual equality of both male and female under the cross. In Jesus Christ, there is no male and female. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't tell the difference between male and female. It means that spiritually, under the cross, both male and female are saved exactly the same way, exactly in the same manner. Jesus and Paul both affirmed women in countercultural ways. It is remarkable, and it's in part because of our distance from the time, 2,000 years past, that we don't recognize not just how, uh, how uniquely Jesus upheld and affirmed women of his time, but also how Paul did, indeed, both Jesus and Paul affirming women in ways that were remarkable at the time and should factor into our understanding of this. Women are called and gifted in ministry. Again, the overall biblical witness demonstrating that over and over again. Remember Joel's prophecy that our sons and daughters would prophesy. This is an image of both male and female participating in kingdom work. It is also true, however, that many churches throughout history have wrongly stifled the ministry of women, have done so in ways that are inappropriate, and of course, there is historical evidence of the abuse of women through, by uh, churches and by men and by other situations across the board. All of these things we understand and recognize are floating in the background as we are talking about this passage. These are not things that we say, state, and forget. They are things that shape the way in which we are supposed to understand this passage because they are biblical truths, and this too, as a biblical truth, factors into the overall totality of the way in which the scriptures articulate the responsibility or the relationship of male and female, particularly in this passage, during a public worship service. Now, this is a little bit of theory here for you, but you'll immediately gravitate towards it, even if you haven't heard it before. It's the idea is every time we come to the scriptures, every time we talk about the Bible and try to understand the Bible, we are looking for and searching for absolute truths or universal truths, universal principles that come to us in cultural packages. We are, by definition, people of culture. You can't be a human being being created in the image of God and not be part of a culture. Everyone had one. Everyone has one. And we cannot interact with each other without communicating in a way that carries our culture with us. And the Bible is no different. The Bible speaks to us in a cultural package, but it speaks to us of biblical universal truths. And so every time we do any Bible reading at all, we are always reading, looking for the universal truth that comes to us in a cultural package, and then it's our responsibility to take that biblical truth and re-embed it in our own cultural setting. So if this is what the culture says, it, it, this is what the, the Bible says, 
then we have to try to figure out, well, what's the, what's the universal truth that's being spoken of, and how does that apply into our particular situation? Sometimes that's very easy. Bible says, do not kill, okay? The cultural packaging there is pretty thin. It's easy to find the universal principle, do not kill. Sometimes it's very hard. Both the Old and the New Testament both tell us that we're not supposed to muzzle an ox while it treads the grain. Okay, that's a cultural package that wraps itself around a biblical truth, and the cultural packaging is so intense that it really takes a lot of work in order to figure out what God is telling us there. Sometimes it's fun. One of the most frequently used commands in the New Testament is that we are supposed to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I didn't get any kisses when I came in today <laughs> from none of you, okay? And that's all right, because there's a biblical principle there, which is not hard to grab. What's the biblical principle? We're supposed to interact with each other. We're supposed to relate to each other as a, as a body of believers that demonstrate our love and our care for one another, okay? How did they do that back in Paul's day? They greeted one another with a holy kiss. How do we want it? do it today? I want you to shake my hand. Don't kiss me. Okay? That, I, I, want, I want to shake your hand. I want to look you in the eye. I want to say hi to you. I want to call you by name. That's my way of greeting you with a holy kiss. The cultural packaging is kind of fun to discern in the midst of the universal truth that is present there. Now, in handling these verses that we have before us, almost always, in my opinion, the struggle that comes down very often is people seeking to be obedient to the Word of God trying to discover where the universal principle is and what is cultural packaging. People are going to disagree about this text, largely based upon, in my opinion, what some folks think are the cultural packaging, other people think are part of the universal truth. And it's hard to discern between the two of those. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the text, let you know what I understand or what I think is the proper way of understanding this passage to, to trying to discern the universal truths that come to us in cultural packages that we then have to learn to re-embed back into our own culture. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about how we re-embed those things back into our culture, into our present time, because what I want to try to do is try to spend time saying, look, where's the cultural packaging here, and where is the universal truths? Now, we have some practice with that right off the bat. So take a look, if you would, with me in verse 8. Verse 8 talks about prayer. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Okay, what's the universal principle here? Well, I think it's fairly clear. You can tell because Scripture as a whole reiterates these kind of things. Prayer is a necessary part, is an important part of our public worship together. If you weren't here with us last week, just want to reiterate, um, this whole passage, this whole section deals with public worship. And so everything here happens within the literary context of Paul saying, this is how I want your public worship to look. How does he want our public worship to look? He wants it to look as though there are lots of prayer that is taking place. And how does that prayer look? That prayer has lifting holy hands. The holy hands uh, part of that is biblical code, if you're familiar with the Old Testament in particular. Um, you can only have holy hands if you are in an intimate relationship with God himself. And so basically what the passage is saying is I want people who are praying publicly before God who are in relationship with me. 
God wants people who are in relationship with him to be praying for him. And so they're supposed to be godly men. They're supposed to pray without anger and without quarreling. They're supposed to be men who pray, godly men who pray without quarreling in peace and without anger in love. So the text here says, absolute principle, we want godly men with peace and in love to be praying. Okay, good enough. Where's the cultural packaging? Lifting holy hands. Uh, Brendan ruined it for me a little bit here. If you noticed, well, during, during his worship, during our worship and during uh, uh, his prayer, he stuck his hand up in the air. Because I was going to say, when was the last time you ever saw me pray with my hands in the air? Or Jerry pray with his hands in the air? We simply don't do that. Does that mean we're breaking the biblical commandments? No, because if you look at the scriptures as a whole, the posture of prayer shifts with the culture in which they're interacting with. Sometimes the posture of prayer is face down before the Lord. Sometimes the posture of prayer is with your eyes lifted up and your hands outstretched. Sometimes the posture of prayer is with your head bowed in reverence. The point is, every posture of prayer is related to the culture to try to communicate the respect and dependence that we have on God. So what is the, the, the universal principle here in verse, in verse 8 is I want godly men praying in peace and with love, and I want it to be done in a posture of respectful dependence upon God. Okay? So the lifting of holy hands is the cultural packaging of which Paul is trying to say, make sure that we are praying in a certain way. We have a continuation of this um, line of thinking in verse 9 and 10, where we talk about how women are to adorn themselves how are they supposed to dress when they come into a worship service, public worship service? Women should adorn themselves respectable apparel, modesty, self-control, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire. Okay, now, the cultural packaging here is fairly clear, especially when you remember that Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is in Ephesus, and Ephesus is the seat of worship for the goddess Diana, and the god, or the goddess Ar Artemis, Greek or Latin, same person, the goddess Ar 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 Diana happens right there in Ephesus. And the mark of a worshiper of Diana for a woman would have been braided hair, would have been a lot of gaudy jewelry, those kind of things. So the cultural packaging here, it, Paul says, is I don't want you to dress in such a way that communicates that you are worshiping some other God than the one that we worship here in this church, the only true and living God. Now, that universal truth continues today. We want people in worship to be worshiping the holy and true God. And you should carry that with you in everything you come into this worship service with. It should eke out of you, as Paul writes, through your good works. It should be shown in every way. In our society, pearls, braided hair, gold, jewelry, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't communicate that you are a cult prostitute for a different goddess. You can communicate that in different ways. For us here, braided hair, gold, jewelry, that's part of our culture as, a, as an expression of beauty. And it should be 
an expression of beauty. It's not outlawed here in the church. What is outlawed by this passage is that don't come into a worship service identifying yourself as some other worshiper. You want to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ when you come into this place. So you've got the universal truth and the cultural packaging. All right, so let's look at verse 11 and 12 here. 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And I gotta say, because this rankles against our contemporary society in our ears so well, we immediately jump to the restrictive part of that. What does it mean in quietness? What does it mean in submissiveness? And our back kind of gets up a little bit and we miss the permissive character of this verse. What really stands out here for Paul's time period would not be the restrictive character, how a woman is not supposed to, you know, the woman's supposed to be quiet and is submissive, but rather the affirmation that a woman is to learn. In this society where Paul was writing, and particularly with his Jewish background, the idea of a woman, an educated woman, a woman being encouraged to learn was completely and co totally countercultural. It was completely a shock and something new for Paul to be affirming the reality that women are to learn. Now, how are they supposed to learn? Uh, some Bibles say, translate this in silence, and that's, that, uh, that's unfortunate because that really does. It's hard to avoid that sounding oppressive and, you know, hey, you're not supposed to say anything. The, the word quietness here is the same way the crowd reacts when Paul gets up to speak or the same way the crowd reacts when Jesus gets up to speak. There's a quiet that comes over to the crowd. It's a hushness. It's a respectfulness to the person who is teaching. And what Paul is saying here is, look, let a woman learn. Let her do so respectfully with an awareness of the submissiveness that we all have under the authority. Again, remember, this is not talking about a woman's education. This is talking about a woman learning in public worship. During the sermon, you're supposed to be respectful to me, or to whoever's preaching, but also then learning in submissiveness. That's why we bang away that this is God's word. This is what we're supposed to submit ourselves to, each and every one of us, male and female. So what Paul is saying here is, look, you're supposed to submit yourselves to God's word. Verse 12 then, Paul writes, let a, uh, Paul writes, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Okay, doing what we've been doing the whole time. This is a universal truth that comes to us in a cultural package. Now, the universal truth for some people is really straightforward. It's perfectly clear. What does it say? It says that. That's what it means. For other people, they're so enamored with the cultural packaging that they think that there is no universal truth. And this just deals with women in Ephesus and because women in Ephesus were all rowdy and stuff like that. So we can just dismiss this. This isn't part of God's word for us today. Yes, it is. There are biblical truths here that are communicated in cultural packaging. So, here's my understanding. I believe that the biblical truth that is being communicated here is the notion of headship. Headship is a biblical idea that runs all the way through the scriptures. 
And it speaks to the importance on the way that God functions in this world, that God functions through the notion of headship, that one person or a group of people will have responsibility, authority, care, and nurture responsibilities over a group of people or over a group of things. Headship is the idea that one has responsibility over the many and has responsibility for the lot. And so you have Adam and Eve together exercising headship over all creation. You've got Abraham, or Moses is a better example, exercising authority, exercising headship over the Israelite people as a whole. You've got the kings exercising headship over the nation. You've got husbands exercising headship over the family. I should have said fathers. Fathers exercising headship over the family. You've got Christ exercising headship over the church. Now, what does that headship entail? It involves what we would naturally understand are notions of authority. It also involves notions of responsibility, of care, and of nurture. All of these things factor into the notion of headship. So I think what's being communicated here is what is our public worship? In our public worship, there is a male headship in how our public worship is supposed to function. That there is a male that has the overarching responsibility, authority, care, and nurture for the community as a whole in public worship. Now, how is that male headship communicated, exercised in the cultural packaging for Paul at that time? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. That idea of male headship works itself out in uh, ancient Near East culture in Ephesus as teaching or exercising authority. What we have to do today is to take the same biblical principle, the idea of male headship in worship, and say, how do we express male headship in worship here in this place? I think to some extent, the idea of teaching or exercising authority, something along those lines, they might still have cultural appreciation for us today, but we just can't assume that the same cultural packaging that worked for Paul works for us. The same biblical truth, universal principle, that works for Paul also for us. I think you can see some of this working out when you look at the reasoning that Paul gives. Verse 15 Sorry, verse 13, Paul says, For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Now, just off the cuff, that sounds incredibly childish. You know, uh, ahaha, I was born three days older than you. You know, I'm the boss kind of a thing. It just sounds childish. But that's not what's happening here. This is this notion of the firstborn. The firstborn of all creation, Christ himself. The firstborn of any family group assumes the responsibility of headship. The firstborn is the one who naturally is evolved into the person who has headship. What Paul is emphasizing here is not the fact that Adam was born first, but that Adam is in that position to assume the headship of the family. And in this case, the male is responsible for the headship of our worship service today together. Verse 14 
For Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, now again, on the surface, this sounds like Paul wagging his finger, you know, saying, well, Adam didn't screw up. Eve's the one who screwed up. Eve bit the apple, and therefore not only childbearing problems, but also she doesn't get to lead in worship. Ah, ha, ha. Okay, but again, I don't think that's what's happening here. I can help develop this outside of the fact, but within the context of the overarching scriptural narrative, remember, we're, we're trying to say here throughout this whole time that the Bible is consistent. What is Paul's consistent view of who screwed this world up? It's not Eve. It's Adam. He consistently recognizes that Adam is the one who fell. Adam is the one who plunged this world into the problems in which we have today. Adam was the one who was responsible for what took place in the garden. Eve might have bit the apple first, but Adam wasn't deceived. Adam voluntarily did it. Remember that. As Satan deceived Eve, Adam was standing right there saying, yes ma'am, me too. Okay? And so I believe what this text is saying is that Adam screwed it up, and as part of the responsibilities, then the male has a responsibility to move towards fixing the problem. Verse 15 then, Paul writes, yet she will be saved through childbearing. All right. Now, right away, that should give some people crawls, you know, because there are women who simply are not able to give birth to children or who are not married or who uh, don't have children for any variety of reason. And is the implication here that only women who give birth are saved? Uh, again, the whole scripture speaks against that kind of a notion, so we can't force the scripture to mean something one place where it doesn't say that anywhere else. So how do we understand what this is saying? I believe what it says is that women, she will be saved through Who's the she there? I think it's Eve. And the childbearing that she is talking about is the bearing of the Christ child. I believe this is nothing more than just an oblique way and I wish Paul hadn't said it this way, but an oblique way of Paul saying, but remember, women are saved by the cross of Jesus Christ, just like all of us. We started here with a discussion of humility for a reason. There are those people that are so confident that they understand what this passage means that they speak without humility. There are also those people that don't like what the passage says, and they react to it without humility. I encourage you, as we have conversations about this, which I know we will, bring them on, as we have conversations about this, watch me. Make sure I am responding with humility. And anytime I'm not, call me on the carpet. Because we are to respond with humility to the word of God. That is our submissiveness. And I need that to be my response. I also want that to be your response. Let's explore what this means together, how we take that universal truth and embed it into our culture, and let's do it with the humility that the Lord has given to us. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you again for granting us this time and for an opportunity to study this passage. Uh, Lord, help us as we reflect upon it. We want to be faithful to your word, and yet we also want to be responsive always to all that you give us. Grant to us, Lord, that ability here during this time, we pray in your son's name. Amen.